0: Hey, everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast. And what we are is, we are a podcast that brings you, or at least aims to bring you, if we're able to, barring certain kinds of unexpected circumstances or whatever. But we aim to bring you, I would say, great Catholic conversation each week. And I am, for that journey, for that effort, for that, um, that uh, journeying together, I am uh, your host, uh, and pillar editor in chief JD Flint and I am accompanied by uh my friend my co-laborer in the vineyard my co accompanying Miss NIST in journeying together on this great spinning synodal journey we call earth ed condon hi jd ed how are you
1: uh, i'm i'm delighted to join you on this hour of aggiornimento.
0: no 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 not not just are you Happy Ed, but really, how are you? Um,
1: I I am, as I believe the Duchess of Sussex would say, resting in my authenticity, JD. I
0: don't know what that is, but I've broken my broken my kayfabe now. It doesn't mean anything. No, none of it does. Okay. Well, no,
1: this is what she says, and I don't I don't understand what it means, and I suspect it means nothing because most of what comes out of that vacuous woman's mouth is completely meaningless, but, you know, resting in your authenticity is, I think, uh, a phrase I'm going to be using a lot more.
0: Well, that is what it is, but I mean, I think it's probably
1: connected to my truth.
0: (sighs) Okay, fair enough. Well, my truth, Ed, really is that uh, I'm just going to say again, just in case you missed it, hey, everybody, uh, welcome to the Pillar Podcast. Podcast brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I am your host and... uh, Pillar Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn. This is my Pillar podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. We are journeying together um, in this – I don't know. I've got no more of that kind of language left. And we've got a lot to talk about and not a lot of time. Uh, So I hope everyone is well. I hope they had a great – I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope that the beginning of Advent for you has been a time of – anticipation of the coming of the lord and i mean that sincerely i hope that you're anticipating not only the coming of the lord at christmas but i hope that you're anticipating the coming of the lord in the fullness of time and i hope that you are anticipating and inviting the coming of the lord in uh, your heart and in your life in a transformative way ed let's talk about ukraine
1: Let's talk about Ukraine. That's a
0: big deal. Okay. There's a lot lot of big deals in Ukraine, yeah. There's a lot of big deals in Ukraine right now. So, uh, as you know, um, everyone, Ukraine is a country in uh, Eastern Europe, and Ukraine was in February invaded by another country in Eastern Europe and Asia um, called Russia or the Russian Federation. And, um, Ukraine has been since then uh, aiming to repel Russian invaders from its country. Uh, we have covered this, covered especially the religious implications of the invasion of Ukraine through the work of our on-the-ground Ukrainian correspondent brought to you entirely by Pillar subscribers, Anatoly Bavinsky, who is uh, a professor of... Um, uh, who is a Ukrainian Greek Catholic, uh, a professor at the Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, a church historian, um, and uh, and it turns out a pretty crackerjack um, journalist who has done a lot of great reporting on the religious situation in, um, in Ukraine. And the reason for that is because um, one of the things that we have said about this war, Ed, from the beginning, and not just us, I mean, people who pay attention to this kind of stuff, but one of the things that can't be missed about the war in Ukraine, which is now in its 10th month since the full-scale invasion of ukraine really there's been more fair going on there for several years now but um, one of the things that can't be missed about the war in ukraine is that there is a a religious dimension not only to the war but there are religious issues at the heart of the war because there are theological claims um, and theological issues at the heart of what in part at the heart of what's going on here is that right
1: Uh, that that is absolutely correct um it is it is an immensely complicated situation. You cannot extricate religion from everything that is going on in Ukraine. I mean, the entire rationale um, that Moscow has advanced for its invasion of Ukraine is is a kind of apocalyptic religious vision. It's pitching itself as the the only and last force for... Christian values in the world, which of course necessitates bombing civilian populations and invading another country, um, pitted against the sort of satanic forces of Western liberalism. And this is not just how Russian President Vladimir Putin has framed it, it's also how the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, has, has also framed it. And the ecclesiastical landscape of Ukraine is is immensely nuanced, is immensely complicated, and how the, the faith, the Christian faith sits in Ukrainian society is very important. You have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, which is, if you like, the, um, it is the Ukrainians. Well, before we
0: do that, before we do the ecclesiological elements or the ecclesiastical elements, let's just do that theological part that you talked about for a moment. So, part of what's going on with the invasion of Russia in Ukraine is um, is a worldview which um, called the Ruski mir, which sees sort of the Russian world as a uh, as, ex- as a successor to the great some of the sort of great historical empires uh, of uh, of the West. So, a successor uh, to Rome and to um, Constantinople. And to Constantinople, yes, a successor to Rome, a successor to Constantinople of the Byzantine Empire, um, and then um, Moscow becoming sort of a third Rome. And with that, a kind of theological claim to enjoy a kind of cultural and nationalistic, excuse me, cultural and um, not quite nationalistic, but nearly imperial sort of claim to exercise sort of headship among the nations of Eastern Europe, a kind of... um, kind of call, a kind of um, Eastern European manifest destiny, if you will, a kind of call to exercise headship and primacy over the nations and people of Eastern Europe, and, and a claim that the nations and people of Eastern Europe, especially the Ukrainian, Russian, and Belarusian people, are really one people, you know, albeit with political borders, one people, one culture, one tradition, one history. And one Christian culture, right? That's the claim of the Ruski mirror is that there's a kind of Christian call to exercise oversight, a sort of divine mandate to exercise oversight and influence in this part of the world.
1: Right. And and underpinning all of this is the understanding, I would argue, and so with the church, the erroneous understanding that ecclesiastical primacy and authority follows secular primacy and authority so that as, right, the, exactly. as the imperial sea of rome moved from rome to constantinople as the caesars as the emperor moved from rome to constantinople so author- ecclesiastical authority therefore was transferred and as it went from um, constantinople the fall of the eastern roman empire and the ascent of the of the russian empire and the and the person of the tsar which of course is just a title that means caesar um that somehow russia has inherited christian primacy in the church because the czar inherited secular primacy from the old Roman emperors, which is historically, let's say, debatable and ecclesiologically wrong. But well, this yeah,
0: is, it's not ecclesiologically valid to borrow a phrase from the Roman pontiff on another issue.
1: Indeed. Um, um, but this is what underpins um, the close cooperation of the Russian state and the Russian Orthodox Church in, in talking about and advancing yeah. this concept of a russic The idea is that there is there is really only one authentic church and it is inextricably bound to the secular authority in russia that the two are e- effectively um divine agents that that is that is their contention
0: so there are so there's this deep sort of theological theological cultural philosophical um worldview that is at the center of what's happening in ukraine there are pragmatic things that have happened too right and russia makes certain pragmatic claims about ukraine's relationship to the west and the way in which russia perceives that it's threatened by that and it's wanting to protect a sort of economic sphere of influence but all of those things do uh, while all of those things are things that russia says they're all said in the in the context of a sense proclaimed both by Putin and by Patriarch Kirill of Russia's sort of theological place both um, politically, secular politically and ecclesiastically, a sort of theological primacy of Moscow um, over this part of the world that is a kind of divine mandate. And so that's undergirding everything. And you really I don't, think, I don't think you can understand and I'm not saying we understand completely and fully we're two Americans talking right here but you really can't understand what's happening without accounting for the way in which the Ruskimir is uh, the uh, philosophic and theological claim that which undergirds a lot of what's happened um yeah. with regard to the invasion. So, there's that. I mean and to then, be
1: clear, I mean if we're going to talk about Ruskiy we need to put it in in immediate historical context, which is not something that has been um articulated or pursued as a as a foreign policy agenda either by the Russian state or by the Russian Orthodox Church um in an unbroken way for hundreds of years. Right. On the contrary, that this is very much a creation of sort of fringe, ultra-nationalist Russian thinkers, political and philosophical, mm-hmm. that have been brought into the orbit of the Russian president in the last decade and a half, two decades, effectively. Um, and then that has gone from being – they've gone from being sort of satellites to the wider Putin presidency to being really the the intellectual, if you want to use that word, um, underpinning of his of his entire project and seeking of a, a legacy so it's not a question of you know in 1900 the russian orthodox church was necessarily using the same language and terminology and everything. this is something that has been in the context of the invasion of ukraine adopted from the russian state which itself was adopted very deliberately from a set of like yeah from a set of what we would in this country dismiss as lunatic fringe political voices
0: who are borrowing certain phrases, certain bits of language from the period of Imperial Russia, right? Yes. From the period of the czars, they're borrowing. They're sort of catting from history. a revanchist fetishization
1: very, of the of the era. I think
0: that's. I think that is fair. Yes. Okay. So that's a theological thing. Then um, there is a sort of direct ecclesiological kind of a, a consequence of that because. In Ukraine, you have a couple of different um, apostolic Christian religious entities, which have varying degrees of relationship to this. Um, The first thing to talk about is the UOCMP, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. This is the the predominant Orthodox Church in Ukraine— the historically the historical Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which is which exists under the primacy and headship of the Patriarch of Moscow. This is a this is an Orthodox Church which perceives that its union with global Orthodoxy is a union that comes in and through the primacy and patriarchate of Moscow, um, namely that it is a sort of daughter church of uh, of the Patriarch of Moscow, and this is the one of the sort of churches in the landscape and the one which. Um, it is the second largest the, church in Ukraine right now. Right. And for the Russians, but it's the historically predominant one. And, yes. for, the, and for Kirill, it's, the, it's, it's, the, its historical existence is the mean by which he claims a, ki- a primacy over, a sort of ecclesiastical and theological primacy over Ukraine, and by which he affirms this notion of a unicity of, um, of, Ru- of Russian and Ukrainian people by the historical presence of the UOCMP. Look, we have been one church under the primacy of, of the patriarch. And therefore, we're one people is is part of the claim of the Mir. So that's so that's one of the churches, right? So then, um, the other Orthodox presence in Ukraine, though, um, is the um, Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which has a historical precedence of, of 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 a number of decades of Orthodox Christians in Ukraine claiming a kind of autocephaly, a kind of independence from the Moscow Patriarchate, which came to a head in the last. 10 years, and most especially, honestly, the last five years. Yes. Correct? Yes. Okay. And what happened was
1: the, to put in context, you, you would expect in the sort of ecclesiological and ecclesiastical development of churches that they grow into this. That, you mm-hmm. know, that diocese Expand and then another diocese is created. Suffragan are created of metropolitan archdiocese. This is all speaking sort of in the Latin tradition, just to give an analogy. And then those dioceses can grow into be archdioceses of their own, and you know what, whatever else. The, you know this is this is part of the organic growth of churches in in the global communion of the church. But anyway, so the and which the, you've
0: had moves for. So by the way, while I say that the the Orthodox Church of Ukraine in its modern iteration has a history going back to decades, you have moves going back several centuries of Ukrainian Orthodox Christians claiming for themselves a kind of autonomy or autocephaly, which means their own headship from Moscow. So especially after uh, the fall of the Russian empire uh, in the, in the 1910s, you begin to have Orthodox Christians in Ukraine begin to call for an autocephalous church and various groups kind of spring up at various times to push for that. But during the Soviet era, there was really not a lot of vitality to that. So there's a history here is all I'm saying.
1: Um, Yes. So anyway, in the last uh, five to ten years, the most important thing that's happened is the, um, is the Patriarch of Constantinople, which is the primus into paris of the, the patriarchs of the Eastern Orthodox Church has recognized the autocephaly, autocephalous nature of
0: the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, sorry, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Um, essentially affirming in 2018 that the Orthodox Church of Ukraine is recognized as its own church proper in the communion of Orthodoxy. Yes. The global and, communion of Orthodoxy, yes.
1: And a great number of uh, the other patriarchs of the Orthodox communion followed suit with Constantinople and recognized them. And this caused the Russian Orthodox Church to declare... Severance that commun- ties with Constantinople. Yes. It basically yeah. said we are no longer in communion with all of the patriarchal sees which have recognized um, the, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which we consider to be basically a, a sort of schismatic splinter faction of the true church, which is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. Uh, and, and, I mean, I remember when this happened, we were covering it um, in a different place at the time. But, this, I mean, this was a huge deal for— Huge deal. Um, huge deal for global orthodoxy. And the ramifications in the wider ecumenical landscape were huge as well because, of course, the, the participation or non-participation of the Russian Patriarch as head of the Russian Orthodox Church, which has a very large place within the global Orthodox communion— um, has been a significant stumbling block to more warm and fraternal ecumenical relations between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches. And so Moscow sort of voluntarily sidelining itself from um, global orthodoxy has also led to a, 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 a much more warm and cordial rapprochement um, in terms of ecumenical dialogue with, with the other Orthodox Churches, primarily through Bartholomew,
0: the Patriarch Constantinople. Yeah. So, Oh, who we interviewed, by the way, recently. Who we interviewed recently. The Pillar. The Pillar. So the third sort of religious group in – the third Christian religious group in Ukraine, the Catholics. You have Latin Catholics in Ukraine, and then you have um, Ukrainian Catholics in Ukraine. The Ukrainian Catholic Church is its own Suyarist Church, Eastern Catholic Church, in communion with Rome. Ukrainian um, Greek Catholic Church. Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which shares a liturgical patrimony with these Orthodox churches, but is um, in the you know, fully in the communion of the Catholic Church.
1: Yes. So you okay. have these three churches in Ukraine um, that are all – Churches, properly speaking, they have, you know, valid sacraments, they have valid bishops. All valid jurisdiction, things. even. Yeah, valid jurisdiction. So you have... Um, well, that's a very interesting question, but we're not going to okay, go into it. We're not, you have the USCMP, you have the OUC,
0: and then you have the UGCC. The, C, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And then you have the Latin Catholic Church, so let's just lump the Catholics together.
1: Yes, the Catholics, yeah. so for the purposes of this...
0: Pache, all and of only the, this,
1: Pache, all of the uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholics and canonists out there who are going to go absolutely mental for me saying this, but you know, let's just put the Catholics in one bucket. The time being, um, so you have the three churches present in Ukraine. Four, if you want to distinguish between the Latin and Ukrainian Greek Catholic churches, but whatever. Um, and the the tension that this has caused since the Russian invasion amongst these churches is is real and fluid. And very, very nuanced because, of and course...
0: a huge influential force in Ukrainian society. A huge, huge influential force. In, the church force has a big role in Ukrainian society, and um, and people have a great deal of trust in the church, and yes. people identify themselves by the, in their relationship to the church. So a huge influence in Ukrainian society.
1: Yes. yes. And and it is it would be an untrue assumption to make that you, faithful Ukrainians of the UOCMP, the church that is a, a suffragan church, effectively, to the... Russian Orthodox Russian Church Russian. and the Patriarch of Moscow um, are somehow innately pro-Russian or sympathetic to the Rusikimir agenda or whatever. They are not in in large cases. You know, there are lots of lots of the men serving in the Ukrainian Armed Forces trying to repel the invasion are of this church. And at the same time, the hierarchy in Ukraine of the USCMP have been trying to navigate the very uncomfortable situation they find themselves in where they insist that no we are we ukrainians. are ukrainians we yeah. are ukrainians we are we are you know the bombs are falling on us too the you know the troops we're in the bomb are...
0: shelters with our people and all of yeah, these things i mean exactly they're, they're, they're... We, we are we,
1: we are ukrainians we are living through this invasion in the same way as every other ukrainian um and at the same time having Kirill asserting you know these are our people these are the real christians in ukraine these are you know and and so there is this cultural tension this ecclesiological tension and you have seen some fluidity um, amongst orthodox christians in ukraine between the uocmp and the
0: ouc in fact you've seen entire you've seen entire parishes so you've seen this has become a hugely dividing force especially in the uocmp right where there there's all this tension about where are we aligned who are we how do, we, how do we talk about ourselves and think about ourselves? Because we have theologically understood ourselves to be uh, under the primacy of the Patriarch of Moscow, and we have practical and actually, indeed, financial entanglements with the Patriarch of Moscow, who supports the UOCMP um, financially and makes our dioceses work. And also, we owe him some fealty and spiritual fealty in the same way that we think about our own ecclesiastical figures. Uh, where are we aligned, and how do we talk about these things? And so, in the UOCMP, the Moscow Patriarchate Aligned Church, there's been just a great deal of struggle. For bishops who don't always know how to talk about this, and some of whom are more have aligned themselves more closely with Kirill some of whom have very much distanced themselves from Kirill. Some of them have stopped praying for Kirill in the Eucharistic liturgy, which is effectively a kind of dissociation, a profound ecclesiastical uh, theological thing to do, is to exempt someone from your prayers in the Eucharistic liturgy. Well, um, this
1: is exactly how Kirill demonstrated the breach of communion with Constantinople. Was He He stopped them? praying
0: for both. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so so you've had in the UOCMP just lots of people trying to navigate this extremely difficult situation. is joining the, the autocephalous church, the OCU, Diocese is in some cases moving in the direction of the OCU. One the bishop Catholics. becoming a Catholic, yeah, one bishop and his diocese becoming Catholic. Um, you becoming Ukrainian Greek Catholic, which is sort of a curveball. All of this stuff going on and splits, and the and the bishops trying to hold themselves together. And uh, uh, several months ago in May coming together for a synod and saying, okay, we're going to take Moscow out of our governing documents because we are Ukrainians and we see how all this is happening and we're under invasion from these people, but at the same time, recognizing theologically their perception that their communion with global orthodoxy comes through the Patriarchate of Moscow and that that's a real theological concept. So this is somewhat on paper. And then the truth that the Russian Orthodox Church has historically been – Infiltrated by, uh, you know, certainly this was true during the Soviet era, infiltrated by the KGB and Russian intelligence services. And the accusation emerging in recent weeks that the UOCMP, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, Moscow Patriarchate, has been influenced by Russian intelligence services and become a distribution center for Russian propaganda. And the charge by U- the Ukrainian government in recent weeks that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church MP and chanceries and monasteries and rectories has become a place for collaborators and spies. And the UOCMP bishop saying, no, 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 that's not true. The Ukrainian government saying we have – we have it on tape. Um, And uh, this – all of this tension escalating dramatically with the accusation that the UOCMP is a repository of collaboration and propaganda with the Russian invaders. So – That's right. So that's the background. That's the background. (laughs) While all of that, while all of that has been happening, and in recent weeks the Ukrainian government raiding UOCMP chanceries and monasteries and saying and arresting people and saying we have arresting spies who are Ukrainian Orthodox leaders uh, um, and and also collaborators um, and saying we found all this propaganda, um, that has led to the revival of a discussion that has been going on in Ukraine for a little while, which is the possibility. And to our American sensibilities, this sounds very foreign, and we can talk about that. Um, How it sounds to our Catholic sensibilities as well, but that has led to President Zelensky announcing on Thursday night, December the 1st, that the um, Defense Council of Ukraine has recommended to the government that they put together a bill which would prohibit religious activities of of churches affiliated with centers of Russian influence. In other words, to prohibit the presence of the UOC MP in Ukraine, that they would effectively curtail Moscow-aligned orthodoxy in Ukraine. Which is a very big step. It's a very big deal. And I, I
1: it's not clear to me from what Zelensky said how that is expected to work. I mean, he said that there's got to be a bill put before their parliament in the next two months, I think, is the, right. the sort of first rule. But, I mean, you're talking about a deeply established church that has been right. in Ukrainian territory for centuries. I don't know how you say, well, we're just not going to. Have them operate. Like what? Are, what is he talking about? Is he talking about seizing ecclesiastical property and land? Is he talking about expelling every cleric? Is he talking yeah. about creating a window where say the is is he going to sort of forcibly by government fiat turn over all UOCMP property to the Autocephalous Orthodox Church of Ukraine? I mean, if so, that that is—I mean, that that is—mess doesn't begin to describe it. It's it's also a huge invasion of the state into the ecclesiastical sphere and, frankly, makes some claims of authority of the state over the proper authority and self-understanding of the church and the faith and ecclesiology— that I would argue would mirror in, in many of the claims that are made often on the Russian side that you know the 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 church is fundamentally subject to the state and can be reconstituted as the state
0: deems fit just today, the Ministry of Culture released a kind of FAQ on this that we have not has not been into our reporting because our, we reported on this last night hours after the president announced it, our Ukrainian correspondent it was well after midnight when he was filing on this it 's a very hugely significant thing just today, the Ministry of Culture. Uh, released a kind of an FAQ about this, and, and they say, why is Zelensky banning the activities of the UOCMP? Religious organizations must not violate the rights and freedoms of the citizens, not pose a threat to life, health, and safety, but the objects of the UOCMP violate these obligations by cooperating with the aggressor country. So the Ministry of Culture is saying the UOCMP will be banned because it's cooperating with our invaders. That, for us as Americans, with a First Amendment in a sense that the government doesn't, uh, doesn't interfere in religious activities is totally foreign to our way of thinking, and as Catholics, with an affirmation in the Second Vatican Council and Dignitatis Humanae of religious liberty as a a value to be upheld, a recognition that people have a right to their conscience does not sort of jibe with our senses, perhaps, of religious liberty as well. It is unusual to see the prohibition of a religious body in the modern state, Um, and it is especially because the uocmp is a church because we recognize the sovereignty of the church now the uocmp is a church in schism with the head of the church on earth the vicar of christ on earth the roman pontiff but it, but we recognize it as a true apostolic church there are questions about its sovereignty from the governance of political authority i don't know that there are questions i'd say there are answers i um, uh, there are okay <laughs> Uh, and and more to the it point, it is hard like, to assert is- not only for the religious liberty of individuals. I mean, we're processing this as we talk, but not only for the religious liberty of individuals, but it is hard to assert that a government has the right to exercise a prohibitive, uh, a prohibitive mandate against a church, a jurisdictional church, a part of you know a, a severed and, and in schism part of the of of the of the communion of the baptized, even albeit out of communion with Peter that
1: right but the, the the thing to bear in mind here is and this is how i don't understand how how this is supposed to play out or or expect to be practical is it treats the idea of the church in this case the uscmp as as what as the bishops of the uscmp as the clergy of the uscmp as visible separate federated institutions of parishes monasteries chanceries whatever else i mean the the, the UOCMP is a church, properly speaking, that means it is constituted by the faithful. Like, is he outlying the religious observance of his own people? Again, no, many of whom are serving FAQ, in his own armed
0: forces. According to this FAQ, the, there will be sanctions against, effectively, what they're calling representatives of religious organizations affiliated with centers of influence in the Russian Federation. In other words, clerics. Clerics of the UOCMP will be sanctioned. And, and, what are and they so supposed to do,
1: though? Are they supposed—is uh, he trying to— oblige them to transfer fealty to the autocephalous orthodox church of ukraine is he saying you need to get out of the country is this is he trying to expel ukrainian clerics from ukraine I, like i the i i can understand that the government security services in ukraine have reported numerous serial recurring instances of finding reams of russian propaganda on uscmp premises presumably for distribution. Get that. And for the sake of this conversation, let's say that is not in question. But I don't know how you get from there to where we're going to suppress the second largest religious community in the country that is made up not of Russians, but of Ukrainians. Presumably, he's thought this through. I mean, he is the president of Ukraine. He's wildly popular in the country, and he could not be so unless he was also wildly popular amongst the second largest religious constituency in the country, which is the U.S.C.M.P. So he must have some idea of how this is meant to play out. But I have to say it's a complete mystery to me.
0: And in fact, here's what Father Mikolay Danielvich, who is kind of a spokesman for the U.S.C., said today. He he said, uh, well, this is no problem. For us, because uh, we're not Russian, (laughs) which is not going to be the way. This is the biggest religious story. Uh, Honestly, this is the biggest religious story of – it's December 2022, but this will be the biggest religious story of 2023. And for religious believers, for the pontiff, for Ukrainian – it's very interesting to know what the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church – this is going to change the way that people talk about the war – I think it's necessarily going to change the way that Catholics talk about the war and Americans talk about the war because it is, um, it, is a, it is a very significant move on the part of Ukraine to ban the presence and ministry of a church, um, even one which does indeed have ties to Moscow, even one in which there has indeed been the of propaganda and it's a, um prohibiting the existence of a church does not align with our sense of the sovereignty of the church period. I'm interested to see how this shakes out. Cause as you said, there's
1: it, what Zilinowski has done is called for his cabinet to produce a bill for parliament in the next two months. I want to see what the bill says.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And it's possible that the bill may come way down off of this. Um, I, and it, it's possible that there will be pressure, this Could be a rhetoric I mean, forward. It, it, it could be, but I mean, what it is, is, I mean, how it will be framed. And I, I, I we're just learning this, right? I mean, but, um, UOCMP believers in Ukraine are now restricted dramatically in the practice of their religion, are to be restric- restricted dramatically in the practice of their religion, in their, in their exercise of religious liberty, because their church is perceived to be the enemy of a state. And that's not something, that's not small, right? I that's mean, not that's small. That's what we talk about in many, that's not a small thing,
1: right? All right, and there's, other, there's, there's a whole other side of this that we need to talk about, but I, we'll be right back.
0: Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, which presents the Christendom At Project, an exciting initiative to bring faithful, rigorous Catholic studies electives to undergraduates at secular universities. You can find out how to earn academic credit towards your degree at whatever university you attend while learning how to defend and share and better understand your faith through the Christendom At Project, by which you can take Christendom courses, which count towards your degree at universities all over the country. And spring registration is now open. Ed, what kind of courses are there?
1: You can take courses in early Christian literature, in
0: the Bible,
1: divine worship in the Catholic Church, Catholicism and modernity, everything from Vatican I to John Paul II, the philosophical foundations of Catholic thought, action in the human person. All of these courses are available and they can be taken entirely online.
0: Yeah, so here's the, here's the deal. What Christendom is doing here, the Graduate School of Theology, is trying to make it possible for you to fulfill some of your requirements in your undergraduate education, no matter where you're going to school, with Christendom classes on theological subjects and s- subjects in Catholic studies. You do that, as Ed says, online, but if there are campuses which have several Christendom ad students, those students can take part in a kind of unique Oxford-style tutorial format of study, and students, no matter where they are, exposed are exposed to the primary sources of the Catholic faith, including Sacred Scripture, the Fathers of the Church, and magisterial documents of popes and councils. Wherever you're going to college, through the Christendom App Project, you can take deeply Catholic classes on deeply Catholic subjects and have them count towards your degree. If you are a student or if you want to take a college class from Christendom in any number of Catholic studies subjects, check it out. The link is in the show notes. The Christendom At Project brought to you by the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology. And we're back, and we're talking about what will probably be the biggest religious story, at least in Europe, in 2023, Move Over Synod on Synodality. It is a move to... Restrict, curtail, or prohibit the religious activities of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine, which is, I, I honestly think, going to change the way that, that Catholics are going to talk about the war in Ukraine because uh, while President Zelensky's administration and intelligence service um, allege that the UOCMP has become a center of collaboration and propaganda distribution for the Russian invaders of Ukraine, and while there may be some, while there, it seems that there's emerging evidence of that, um, the response of the Ukrainian government at the moment is Um, to to place a number of measures that would personally, economically, potentially criminally sanction uh, clerics of the UOCMP and prohibit the religious activities, which is to say the liturgical and sacramental life in as much as we understand it of the UOCMP in an effort to stamp out what the Ukrainian government is calling a propaganda distribution network. This raises... Serious religious liberty questions, obviously. This raises serious um, questions about the sovereignty of the Church or a serious challenge to the sovereignty of the Church, obviously. And while the Pope has been or has gotten more and more supportive of Ukraine's cause in defending its country from the Russian invaders, I have to imagine that the Pope and lots of Catholic intellectuals are going to raise real hackles about... A restriction on religious liberty that is very foreign, I think, to the perspective of American Catholics and Western Catholics on religious liberty, and I think many people are going to argue foreign to the affirmation of religious liberty uh, and uh, which is expressed in the Second Vatican Council.
1: I think that's right. I, there, there are going to be more immediate, practical consequences. I, I would say. Last week, we learned that two Catholic priests had been arrested and detained in occupied portions of eastern Ukraine. This happened on the twenty fourth, and you know, at the time, we saw a lot of sort of you know commentators and hot takers say that this was um, this is an immediate response by the Russian government to Pope Francis giving an interview in which he he spoke perhaps um, more starkly than he has heretofore on some of the brutalities being meted out by Russian troops in Ukraine and, and that sort of thing. But um, as is often the case, hot takes are, are often wrong and based on poor assumptions. And it turned out, and we reported this this week, again, through Anatoly, um, that the priest had actually been arrested sometime before, that it was just their arrest was announced last week, and it happened to coincide right. with this interview coming out with Francis. But these guys had already been in Russian detention for some time. And we spoke to their superiors. We spoke to their bishop in in Eastern Ukraine, and they said that this is straight. This is this is retaliation. It's straight up retaliation. But it's not retaliation against Pope Francis giving an interview. It's retaliation for the Ukrainian government's raids on UOCMP premises, and that what the Russians are purporting, and which the you know the redemptorist both of these priests that arrest or redempt what the redemptorist is saying and the local bishop is saying total fiction clear slander they said is that these guys were trafficking weapons um in in eastern ukraine basically organizing you know violent acts of sabotage and and, and attacks on russian forces which again you can't find any um catholic in ukraine or at least i haven't been able to see any catholic in ukraine uh, and certainly not in those regions who who thinks that this is even remotely plausible uh, on the part of these two priests, but you know again the Russians sort of staged a raid and laid out what they say they found, and they said, "Look, we found explosives and and guns and all this." And the superiors of these priests have said, and they've told us, they said, we're really worried. These guys are are being tortured, and that they will be tortured into making some kind of false confession. And that if this is the Russian retaliation for Ukrainian government security forces cracking down on the dissemination of propaganda by um, the USAMP, this is only going to get a lot worse. And you, we could we could get to a point where basically every church building every cleric in ukraine suddenly becomes fair game suddenly becomes a, a person of suspicion or even a legitimate target that you know we are we are seeing in real time the what has been the the peaceful pastoral presence of clergy in ukraine from from all three um, christian traditions and churches suddenly morph into them being treated and seen as essentially combatants Mm -hmm. And that is a big deal. And it's frankly terrifying.
0: Yeah. And actually, you know, um, we have been kind of expecting this because Anatoly did a report a couple of weeks ago talking about, um, priests, Catholic priests, Ukrainian Greek Catholic priests who are engaged in ministry in the, um, occupied territories of Eastern Ukraine. And, um, and and the point that uh was made the point that Anatoly made was uh, or excuse me the point that the the people who spoke with Anatoly made is that this was several weeks ago is that um they expected that the Russians would begin a kind of campaign of propaganda um in which they first tried to gain the support of clergy for the invasion and and have and and turn clergy to collaborators but when that couldn't happen then they would turn on a kind of persecution and we had heard about some Christian leaders who had already been kind of arrested or had uh, seen their rectories raided or things like that. But this is an an extraordinary escalation. Obviously, Zelensky's decree was an extraordinary escalation, but it comes after this escalation of retaliatory things back and forth, as you say, where first the Ukrainian security service is raiding monasteries and rectories, and then the Russian occupiers are arresting Catholic priests. And um, as you say, the most sort of immediate effect of Zelensky's decision, I think, is that on both sides but that includes i think for Ukrainian Greek catholic priests there will be far more of a politicization of the past of the pastoral or just you know par- parochial presence of clerics across ukraine
1: well and not just ukrainian greek catholic latin catholics in ukraine i mean these two priests are redemptorists they're latins uh they're 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 greek catholic redemptorists actually which well, they're i didn't greek know catholic redemptorists, but,
0: but they're you see this is how this greek is catholic how nuanced and,
1: and, and complicated the ecclesiastical landscape is in ukraine This goes to my point is, my error there proves were like,
0: eastern catholic redemptorists exactly right?
1: my, my error proves my point that i um that this is this is endlessly complicated and you have to follow it really carefully it and you have to know the details and that is why we have a Ukrainian totally correspondent who is an expert in church affairs in, in Ukraine.
0: There, there's a Ukrainian Thank Catholic bishop we spoke to who said that, not, that those redemptors are not the only ones who have been detained. He talked about a priest who apparently in another part of Ukraine was um, – a Catholic priest, a Greek Catholic priest, who apparently in another part of Ukraine was detained and put in a car and interrogated, and then dumped effectively on on a, a kind of a minefield, a kind of a, an honest to God battlefield by uh, by a Russian militia. And so there, there will be more and more of this. There will be priests. I think there's the real potential for priests um, uh, to be killed in the process of the kind of uh, the, this kind of retaliatory back and forth. But it, um, but and and we really can't say. I mean, I don't think we can say. There's the sense in which these things are retaliatory back and forth, and there's the appearance of that. We really don't know the degree to which clerics are indeed involved on either side and the kinds of things of which they're accused of being involved in, which is what makes it very hard in these kinds of things to sort of parse out the truth of what's happening. I mean, there are some things which I think will be obviously propagandist. For example, the Redemptorists, the Russians say that they were arrested because they were engaged in arms trafficking, Um, but the, the search of their rectory in which apparently arms were found, happened a week after they were arrested. So the timeline just doesn't a- add up well, in a manner that's obviously almost cartoonish, there, right? T- yeah. Exactly. The, yeah, it, right. I mean, it's almost cartoonish to say, oh, yeah, we, we arrested them because we raided the rectory and found weapons, and we raided the rectory after we arrested them. I mean, that's sort of cartoonish. So do that kind of thing. But I do think there will be ways in which it will be hard to parse what is true about what's coming out about the religious situation of Ukrainian clerics. Well, it will require very
1: careful following and sifting of what facts we can get and establish as facts, which is what we're going to do.
0: And going back to the broader picture, we don't yet know, but I think the real challenge now for the Holy See is the, is, is the way in which it will, if it will, choose to intervene in this part of the conversation. To date, the pontiff has gotten to the point where he is frequently sort of extolling Ukrainians defending their homeland. Um, and yet, it seems unlikely that he is going to extol this, and the question is whether or not he's going to speak about it at all, whether or not he thinks it will be of value to speak about it, so to speak, um, what kind of pressure will speak about it. And the same thing for Metropolitan Shevchek, the Metropolitan Archbishop of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, who has been a staunch defender of the the cause of Ukraine and its defense, but who— I don't think we will sort of readily align himself with an effort to, I don't expect, I could be wrong, but I don't expect we will readily align himself with an effort to effectively prohibit the existence of a church uh, in within U- Ukrainian territory. So I think these guys are now in a very, uh, it's very difficult to predict what these guys are going to do and say at this point.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, J.D., I have had more than a few people suggest to me that they are they are grumpy they are grumpy with the podcast they're grumpy with the podcast why yes we have not been playing games sufficiently often oh. and i think that's a fair criticism and we want to give the people what we want we want to have serious conversations we want to do all that but we also we aim to entertain
0: that we are uh, you know we are i wouldn't say we're infotainment but we aim to be a well no, but we want show. to
1: both inform and
0: entertain separately
1: yes yes we have that component we can keep them in discrete boxes. We have that ability,
0: and uh, we have just this, had a very serious conversation about a very serious issue pertaining to religious liberty. And I am and trying to draw a, a
1: bright line in the podcasting sand and say, bright we are line now crossing time, crossing over that line into something that is different. We're crossing to have the have a threshold di- to, of game. We're we're going to have a different. Did you see the news item this week um, about UNESCO?
0: Yes, UNESCO, the United Nations sort of global heritage. I don't know what it stands for, but the United Nations sort of global cultural apparatus uh declared the declared the baguette to be a a, a bastion of an important landmark in human culture and heritage part of our
1: intangible global cultural heritage i don't understand how you can call a loaf of bread an intangible but that's neither here nor there i don't understand most of what comes out of u.n agencies but it struck me jd and I, and I wrote a little bit about this in my newsletter this morning, that this was um, a little insecure on the part of the French to basically say we need the UN to tell the world that our bread is uniquely cultural. I, it seemed a little, a little
0: insecure. Yeah, but we've I, never done that. We've never asked UNESCO to declare Wonder Bread or anything uh, global. No, in
1: fact, although the French have claimed, um, the French have a number of entries uh, that they've Ooh. managed to get UNESCO to make for them on their behalf in the in their register of global intangible patrimony uh the u.s has a couple of buildings that are listed as world heritage sites by unesco but Mm -hmm. nothing on the on the intangibles category which when you consider the things we have made when you consider the things we have done um i think i i think even the french would concede that america has contributed to to global culture not always for the best but it has definitely made contributions so um i I thought though that since the french appear to be feeling the pressure a little bit um feeling the need for some affirmation and assurance we might play a little game at their expense
0: (laughs) that sounds okay to me i mean that sounds okay to me all right so we're going to play a, a little round of french yes or no french yes or no french yes or no Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Friend, The way yes or no works, by the way, is that Ed will say things, and I am to um, uh, sua sponte of my, you know, without sort of thinking about it strategically, Your but Pavlovian just react response. with my sort of visceral response to the thing. Yes. Uh, of affirmation or. Yes. yes. JD. France. Yes, yes or no? <laughs> no. Great game. Okay. Good. That's Well done. Okay. Well done. The that Pillar was Podcast, great. the production of Pillar Media, and Ed and JD. Produ- is that it?
1: I actually have more, and I feel like the reason I came up with this game was because people have been complaining we don't play enough games. I feel it would be churlish to just leave it there, although I don't know what else we can say after
0: that. That was quite a game. I mean, very honestly, France Yes or No. It it. it covered every base. So now we're we're playing a different game now. So if you think that we haven't played enough games, we're about to play our second game, which is even more French Yes or No. French things Yes or No, yeah. French things Yes or No. Ooh, la, la. We'll call it it our ooh, la, la segment. All right, fine. Um, JD, baguettes, yes or no? Yes, in fact, I baked a number of baguettes uh, for Thanksgiving. I don't mind baguettes. I
1: I recognize that they are a thing. I mean, they do go stale pretty much in the space of time it takes to say the word baguette, which is a drawback, of course. But uh, no, a nicely
0: made baguette they are they are
1: a thing. They're iconic.
0: I recognize that, even if I'm. I, you've got to I have very good butter that's room temperature, um, and salty. You've got to have you know you got to you got to. Break the baguette in half, rip it open, butter it up, and then you've got to soak up some sauce.
1: Uh, th- those are or, all things that it's very good for.
0: Or slice the baguette in half, butter it, put ham on it. There we go, you see. And eat that. Have you ever had a butter and ham sandwich? Uh,
1: I think I've, I've consumed many baguettes, and they have had ham in them. Um, they, it's also usually a delivery vehicle for cheese for me.
0: Okay. I, I, I encourage you, Ed, honestly, if you're feeling like doing something French this weekend, have an existential crisis, chain smoke a lot of 100s, which are long thin cigarettes if you don't do that. Um, and then make yourself a butter and ham sandwich, which is probably the best sort of French thing that you can make if you're not making coqueval. Okay, fair enough. All right. So, JD, um, your next entry, La Tour Eiffel. The Eiffel Tower? I would say no. I have only been to Paris two times, but I did not enjoy it. Paris is, and I, I, this, is, this is not so much opinion
1: as empirical scientific fact, Paris is the worst part of France. Like the, sure. many I have of the, no doubt. Ma- many of the stereotype, negative stereotypes that people have of French people, of them being sort of rude and aggressive and haughty and things like that, this is actually just a Parisian stereotype that the rest of the country agree with everyone else about to oh, do it'd Parisians? be like as if
0: we interpreted every English person through London.
1: I was going to say, is it's as if you, you think people in New York are a suitable stand-in for sort of the inhabitants of Nebraska, for example, that these are two very different peoples. Um, so, yes, Latourifel, no. Okay. J.D., La Marseillaise,
0: Or La Marseillais? La Marseillaise? Is that the I song? Ba-bum, 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 yes, the ba-bum, French ba-bum, national ba-bum, anthem. Ba-bum, the French national anthem. Yeah. mm mm-hmm. Really? Really? Ba-dum, 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 it's a little bloodthirsty Yeah it rocks ba-dum, 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 I don't know the words but you know what I'd like You don't do you know, know, know the words No nah, I don't know the words you know what I'd like though I would like a Jimi Hendrix cover of this well, I, Would you like to know a, a nice life hack And then it's like you know the Jim, Do you know the Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner I do yes Yeah okay. I mean so I thought it was a little disrespectful no, you did not. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I didn't. But I just wanted to see if I could say it. No, but I'll tell you a life hack. If you don't know the words to the French national anthem, and again, I, as I say, they, you know, oh, to arms, oh, citizens, O arms, citoyens, you know, all that's good fun. Um, but it is a rather bloodthirsty French Revolution. I have no doubt. Um, song. But I'll tell you what, if you don't know the words, there is a life hack. Uh, and, and I learned this because, you know, if you, if you watch international. we would stop saying life hack. I know, but it's the it's the word that people understand for the thing that I'm about to say. Okay. Um, if you watch international sporting events, for example, the World Cup or Le Coup du Monde, as the French foppishly they call it, uh, you you will see at the beginning of every match, the camera will pan across the players as their national anthem plays and they're expected to sing lustily along. And, of course, not all the players know the words to their own national anthems. Uh, the French are no exception. In any country. Yeah. In any country. Um, but actually, if you are on camera and being expected to sing along to the French national anthem, you can just mouth the words "Pompe à vélo to the rhythm of the music, and it will look exactly as though you were singing the lyrics perfectly.
0: How did you learn that? Trial and error. Wow. Yeah, a, ba-dum, ba-dum,
1: ba-dum, no, which for those of you who don't speak French, Pompeii, which means bicycle pump. But you can, yeah, no. this will work. Um, okay, I have it. Uh, JD Galois. What Galois? Uh, I don't know what that is. They are the they are the sort of um, heavy heavy duty French cigarette, beloved of Parisian cafe society. Oh,
0: I always when I come across that in a novel, I always say gloot. Ah. <laughs> Galoots, yeah. I mean, I come across them in enough novel. There's always classy people smoking galoots in a in a nice in a good even in an English novel. You know, you know the wow. character's going to be classy if she's smoking galoots. Wow. Okay. No, she's probably going to be a spy, but never mind.
1: Um, no, it could be a classy spy. All right. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum,
0: ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum.
1: You're going to you're going to stop making that noise now. That's that's your second warning.
0: Ba-dum, ba-dum. Stop it. Okay. Charles De Gaulle, JD. Oh, sure, absolutely. Charles De Gaulle. He's got an airport. He had a daughter who had down syndrome. Rebuilt France after the war, I believe. Sure, Charles de Gaulle. I'll, he, I'll I figured
1: that. you'd be in favor of him. I mean, he was an insufferable jerk, but he was a, a beautiful witness of love um, to the dignity of his daughter through through her entire life and his entire life. In fact, so yes, Charles de Gaulle. Oui. um La service à la française, Judy. Service à la française.
0: Does that mean the French Foreign Legion? No,
1: no. Um, la service à la française is the, is the French gastronomic dinner... That is also listed by UNESCO uh, as a unique contribution to uh, global cultural heritage. It is basically a big family dinner, and the French claim they invented it.
0: Oh, I like a big family dinner. So do do we, I. Are we going to eat something French? Uh, no, you have to pair.
1: You have to have a succession of courses. There has to be pre-dinner drinks. You have to end up with post-dinner drinks. You are supposed to proceed through, you know, appetizers. I mean, courses and everything, and you should be so eating the wine dinner, with basically. the food. <laughs> having a nice dinner. The French think they invented. Yeah, I that.
0: like having a nice dinner.
1: I also like having a nice dinner. I don't know that I accept that the French invented the idea, but there you are. As I said, there are. But you are doing it again. Stop it. Um, okay, joy de palm. Joy of
0: palm. No, huh? je. No, joie, je. Je, je of palm, je. The game the, of the palm JD. The game of the palm, handball
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that would be a correct, I suppose, interpretation This is, in fact, the sport which we in English would now call real tennis um, and Oh, it,
0: real it, tennis, I've always super been interested in real tennis Yes, and it purports to
1: be the uh, primogenitor
0: of, of all Paddle sports, tennis, yeah, table tennis, You know who's playing real ball. tennis, actually? Because, you know, actually, gosh, who was it? I, I have done – I have a rabbit hole in Wikipedia on real tennis, and there's some <laughs> contemporary royal who is, a, who is a real tennis aficionado, you know, not a lawn tennis aficionado, which is what that they would call, you know, sort of Steffi Graf tennis, but yeah. a, a real tennis aficionado, and it's always winning tournaments, but I can't remember who it is now. But at any rate, that's neither here nor there. You know who also plays real tennis is um, – uh, have you ever seen Dis- the Disney Robin Hood? Yes. Do you know what Maid Marion and the Chicken are playing? Apparently uh, they're playing. I-, I know it looks like they're playing badminton, but I read something one time in which it suggested that, in fact, they were playing real tennis.
1: Well, there you go. But real tennis is an indoor sport, so that can't be true. Now, but it hasn't always been. I it's on it a had- court. It's on a court. Like, look, like- the 30 seconds of reading I did on jus de pomme.
0: Yeah, sure. Pomme yes, I will say yes. Was, I think old. I think old-timey right. versions of contemporary sports are neat. Fair enough. Eric Cantona. I don't know who that is. is Eric Cantona was a
1: very famous... Is a very. He's not dead. He's just retired. A very famous French footballer who played most of his career in England. And he was also something of an existentialist philosopher, J.D. He he would say things like... And these are real Eric Cantona quotes. When the seagulls follow the trawler, it is because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. Or I am searching That's for... That's probably av- true. Yeah. I am searching... For abstract ways of expressing reality, abstract forms that will enlighten my own mystery. Oh, I. He also said
0: you can feel very quickly a prisoner of your past, of memories. No, I don't. No, I think no. Are you sure? Eric Cantor, for me, the answer would be no. Okay. That is Eric Cantor.
1: You're wrong. I'll give you one more quote, just in case. I can't possibly be wrong. My best moment. I have a lot of good moments, but the one I prefer is when I kicked the hooligan.
0: Okay, that sounds clever.
1: Yes. All right, um, and let's let's finish this off, JD, because I know you've got places
0: to be. Uh, mayonnaise, JD? <laughs> yes. No. An emulsion of eggs and oil? There, <laughs> there, there's no right or wrong here, but yes, of course, an emulsion of eggs and oil. Ed, have let me ask you this: Have you ever made your own mayonnaise? Yes. Okay, and you still don't like it? I it is it is a, it is a component
1: for me. I as a thing in itself, it serves no purpose. It is essentially a lubricant.
0: Um. Or, no, or a see thickener. that means that you haven't made it well. That means you haven't made it well and seasoned it well. If you make your own mayonnaise and you season it well, then it can be really quite extraordinary. If you make mayonnaise with a little bit of garlic, for example, maybe people would say that's an aioli, but I don't think so. I well, think you can make uh, a mayonnaise. Uh, and still given little that little French
1: bit invented it, we can safely assume it properly involves garlic.
0: Yeah, if you can make yourself a nice mayonnaise with some lemon juice, a little garlic, oil, egg yolk, really whip it good. Um, you will have uh, you will have something which is quite lovely and quite airy. All right, I, I will not, take your I'm word not for it. saying helmets or uh, as right. right. Okay, you're saying but yeah. Okay,
1: what what might be properly referred to as salad cream? But okay, uh, very well. And me. finally, JD Euro Disney.
0: I would like to see it. I mean, I would like. I've been i there. would I would like to people watch at Euro Disney. I would like to, Euro to people Disney watch at twice. Disney World Europe, and was it was, was was the people watching as good as I want to believe that it was? Yes. See, yeah. So yes. yes. I mean, thank you, Disney, for giving us what I suspect is an extraordinary gift for people watching,
1: uh, and also an extraordinary gift to France.
0: Okay. Great. Well. Very good. Well, thank you for playing. You know what they like French to say about history. that? Safety. <laughs> 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 Le pillar podcast, le production Mais du pillar media. Obviously, nouvelle, ça, obviously c'est I c'est have c'est not c'est taken c'est a lick of French in my life. Un <laughs> production Ed e e Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. We'll be back next week to talk about very Et many things. Check out our sponsor this week, the Christendom App Project, in the show
2: notes. Des longs des golfs à des reflets d'argent, la mer, des reflets changeants sous la pluie, yeah. la mer. A ver. Amor, la meo, a per se monque, por la vida.